about 20 years ago, I was pastor of a church that we had started a weekly visitation program. Some of y'all remember that, remember doing weekly visitation. I, this was, even though 20 years ago, this was at the, at the stage where churches weren't doing that sort of thing anymore. And so I wanted to make it as easy as possible, as convenient as possible. So we didn't ask people to come on an extra night of the week. We said, just come on Wednesdays. We'll, we'll move our, our Bible study and prayer meeting up an hour, and then we'll all go visiting after we've studied the Bible together. So you don't have to come an extra night. You're already going to be here anyway. I said, we're not going to cold call anybody. We will, we will call ahead. And we're not going to visit just random people. We're going to visit people who have visited our church, who members of our church have said, you need to go visit this person. So it'll be, it'll be people who should already have an interest in, in us and in the things of God. And even so, it was hard. Now, we got off to a good start. People were behind it, and they were excited, and so they showed up. But even calling ahead didn't really work, because when we could get people to answer the phone, which wasn't always, often they would make excuses, and it was obvious they didn't want us to come. And then when we would go, most of the time when we finally got to see these people, and by the way, we brought cookies. You know, we wanted to make sure. I wanted every group that went, because we went in groups of twos and threes, I wanted them to think, okay, even if they don't like me, they're going to be glad I'm there because the cookies are there. Uh, but we'd go and we'd sit and we'd visit with these people and try to be as friendly as we could, and, and it was awkward. You could tell. They didn't really like having strangers in their homes. Um, so it wasn't long before it had dwindled down to just a handful of people that would show up, that would stay after Wednesday night Bible study to go visiting with me. Now, one of the people who was in that handful, and by far the most faithful one, was a guy I will call Bob. Uh, Bob was one of these guys who grew up just a wild, rebellious, godless youth and young adult. And then as a, in his, I guess his 30s or so, he came to know Christ. And he was just on fire for Jesus. He loved the Lord. He was so thankful to be saved. And he was passionate about soul winning. He just loved, that. that's what he loved more than anything else, was telling people about Christ, leading people to salvation. And so, boy, he was behind. I, I would have stopped the visitation long before, since everybody had abandoned me, but I didn't want to disappoint Bob. Uh, and, but when I would go, when I was paired up with Bob on these visits, I got to watch. His approach was very different than mine. He was very bulldog, full steam ahead, make you make a decision right then and there. So one night we went on one of these visits, and this was a, a family that they said they were Christians, and, but it was not at all that eventful of a, a visit. You, you walked away thinking, okay, I'm glad we did that, but I'm not sure we made any good impact. I'm not sure we'll see these folks again. Uh, and as we're walking out, there was a woman on the front porch of the house next door, and he just made a beeline for her. He said, ma'am, can I speak to you for a minute? And she said, uh, uh, sure. And he reached into his back pocket and he pulled out a gospel tract. This was Bob's way of witnessing. He used the same method every time. So he stood shoulder to shoulder with her so she could see what he was doing. And he flipped through it and he read every word to her. And then when he got to the end, he said, okay, ma'am, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Or something like that. And she said, yes. I mean, what do you expect her to say? Uh, yes. And he said, well, I, then will you pray this prayer with me? Okay. And so he led her through this prayer. She prayed the prayer after him. And I, I'm not a mind reader, but I was pretty sure that when he said amen and thank you, she couldn't have been happier to get away from him. I mean, just so, so excited to get inside her house and probably thought, I'm never going on my front porch again. Um, as we walked away, Bob said, well, that's one more person that ain't going to hell. 
And I, I hope he's right. But at the time, I thought, I'm just not sure. I think maybe she was just saying what she had to say to get us off her front porch. Um, now, I don't judge Bob at all. He had a fantastic heart, and he had the absolute right motive. What he cared about more than anything was Jesus had saved his soul, so he wanted to, he wanted to say thank you by bringing as many people to heaven with him as possible. And there's no better motive than that. Um, I think, I, I think when, when Bob stands before the Lord, the Lord is going to commend him for that. And he was just doing what he did in the way he was trained to do it. And, and a lot of us were trained in a similar way. Maybe not exactly the same way with reading a gospel tract, but we were trained in various ways of sharing our faith, presentations that were given to us. If you're my age or older, certainly, and you grew up in church, you were trained in that way. Um, so last week, we talked about how if you want to defend your faith, you have to have a wise approach to unbelievers. And part of that, as we talked about last week, was keep the focus on the gospel. We're not out to win arguments. We're out to win people. We're not out to make ourselves look smart and other people look dumb. We're out to win them to Christ. And there is a time for confrontational evangelism like Bob used and probably still does. He's probably still going. And there are people, even people in this church, that use methods like that and have success. Those are people who you just look at them and you say, this person's got the gift of evangelism. They can just spot the person who is ripe for the harvest, the person who has reached that point in their life where they're ready for a conversation about Christ and they can zero in on them and say, hey, can I talk to you? And right then and there, a person they've never met before and may never see again in just a short conversation, lead them to faith. And I believe that's real and that's genuine. So you and I should be equipped to do that. Because if we're walking with God, there will come times where we run into someone and it's just obvious to, to us. They want to hear more. They want to know about God. They want to know about salvation. We, there is an open door there. We need to be ready for those kinds of conversations. We also need to be ready when people come up and ambush us with some question about faith that we don't feel equipped to answer or some accusation about Christianity or even when we overhear someone saying something about spiritual issues or about the Bible or about the church and we know it's not true and we think, well, I should say something, but I don't know what to say. Next week, that's what we're going to talk about, having a wise approach to those kinds of conversations. And, and I think that's going to be useful to a lot of you. But tonight, we're going to talk about having long-term relationships with unbelievers and why that's so important. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound like apologetics. It sounds like witnessing. Well, when you get right down to it, what's the difference? What is the difference? Defending our faith is giving an answer for the hope that we have. Uh, we are called to tell people what Jesus has done for us, whether that's an, a skeptical unbeliever or someone who is ready to hear. So let me just start with this. So go back to my whole, the failure of my visitation program at that church. Times have changed. That was 20 years ago. It's even more so today. Last Christmas season, I was out of town doing a wedding and I just waiting for the wedding to come around. I, I, I went to a junk shop in this town, this is in the hill country, and I was looking for Christmas presents for my wife and my daughter. And, and so uh, I didn't find anything for them, but I found this sign that I really wanted to buy. And it's a porch sign. You're supposed to put it out on your front porch so people come, get ready to ring the doorbell, they'll see this sign. And here's what it said, and I think it's written on your sheet. I don't answer the doorbell. If you know me, you know my cell number, so text me and I'll come to the door. If you don't, 
go away. <laughs> Man, I wanted that sign. <laughs> I wanted it, because that's how I feel. I, I don't like when people just come up unannounced and ring my doorbell and knock on my door. Uh, you know, I have to remind myself, okay, you are a Christian. This is to be kind. These are real people. These people Christ died for. Um, but I, I knew I couldn't buy it. That wouldn't be right. That's not the right attitude. I'm not proud of that attitude, but I know that's the way many people feel, especially people my age and younger. So if, as we've already talked about, non-Christians don't tend to come to church anymore because they no longer see the church as the place of finances. They don't trust institutional, organized religion. So, so you, we can't just hope that your average lost person is going to wander in on a Sunday morning and hear the gospel and walk forward and get saved. That's just not going to happen the way it used to. And if, on the other hand, they don't want us to come to their house, then how are they going to hear? How are they going to hear about Christ? And the answer is through you through the people God has already placed in your life, through the people that you have long-term relationships with. So at the start of this study two weeks ago, I, I told you about Jonathan Haidt's uh, image of the elephant and the riot. Some of you are going to remember this. Others of you aren't. Maybe you weren't here, or you just need a refresher. So here's your refresher. So elephant and the riot, here's how it works. If you can picture a guy riding an elephant, He's got the reins in his hand, right? So it looks like he's in charge. But if ever the elephant and the rider disagree, the elephant is going to win every single time because he's so much bigger and stronger. And Jonathan Hines, the image, that, that represents our emotions versus our rational thinking. So uh, we think that if you make a good argument to someone, you can change someone's mind. But Hines says, the rational mind is just the rider. The elephant is our emotion. How we feel often dictates what we choose to believe. And his book is about this is why it's so hard to change people's minds when you talk about religion or politics. We're going to talk about religion, okay? But let me give you an example of, you know, kind of an extreme, easy to understand example of the elephant and the rider. So imagine that I came to you and said, hey, did you, you know that guy who lives down the street from you? And you're like, oh yeah, I know that guy. He's, he's a good guy. And I gave you evidence that he was embezzling money from his company. Chances are, if the evidence was good enough, you'd say, well, man, that's a real shame. I always liked him. I, I didn't know he could do something this good. But you believe, because there's the evidence. But if, on the other hand, I came to you and said, hey, did you know your dad is a thief? Or your spouse? Or your child? Somebody really close to you? Let's say your dad. Your, your dad is embezzling from his company. Look, here's the evidence. You, first of all, you ordered me out of your house. So you, you, would, you would not believe the evidence, no matter how much evidence I offer. You would find loopholes. You would find ways not to believe. You would find alternate explanations. I would show you, look, look, on this day, $5,000 went missing from his company. And the same day, your dad deposited $5,000 in his bank account. And you'd say something like, well, but he's got a side business. And, and he makes money there. It's just a total coincidence that he made the amount of money that day that, that his company lost. It just, you can't prove it. After a while, you might even say, I think you're doctoring all of this. You're making all of this up. You, you're framing my father. Now, why would you do that when you were so quick to believe about the neighbor? Because you're emotionally invested in your dad. 
If your dad turns out to be a thief, that turns your whole world upside down. You don't want to believe that, and so you're going to look for any evidence to the contrary, and you're going to look at evidence in favor of it in a way that says, no, I can't, I can't believe that. There has to be another explanation. Now, let's look at it from a faith standpoint. Imagine you have a co-worker who is a Muslim, and you don't know him well, but you overhear him talking sometimes about faith, you hear him saying things about Christianity, things he's been taught, like, well, you know, Christians believe in three gods and not one, so they're not really monotheists, they're polytheists. Or, you know, the Bible was the Word of God when it was first written, but down through the years, the church changed it over the centuries to fit their agendas, so you don't know what it originally said. Or, well, you know, you look at American society, and look what look at the impact of, of Christianity and how decadent American society is compared to society from where, I, where I'm from, where things are moral. Uh, you can tell that Christianity is a morally inferior religion. We don't have all this pornography and, 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 and ugliness in our country. Now, you want to answer that, right? You want to you respond, but, but how do you do that? Well, you decide, I'm going to... I'm going to study up, I'm going to pray up, and I'm going to confront this guy, and I'm going to prove his arguments wrong, and I'm going to lead him to Christ. So you get on YouTube and you watch every video you can of people presenting arguments, uh, uh, showing that Christianity is true and Islam is false. You, you watch videos of, of missionaries who served in Muslim countries and ex-Muslims who became Christians, and you read books written by apologists, and you come up with all the arguments. You feel like you, you know Islam better than he does by this point, and you, you come to him and you say, listen, can you stay around after work today? Because I need to talk to you about something. So he says, yes. As soon as everybody's gone out of the office, you light into it. And you give him all your arguments. And it goes flawless. I mean, your study has paid off. Because every time he tries to counter your argument, you counter his counter-argument and you shut it down. I mean, if, if there had been an audience there, you would have won the debate hands down. But he doesn't change his mind. He just says, well, I guess you're just one of these people that believes whatever your church tells you. I can't do anything for you. He walks away. Irritated. And he thinks, well, what happened? I thought I did everything right. The problem is, think about what happens if he doesn't change his mind. That means that his teachers have lied to him. And for a man like that, who feels like a foreigner about nine-tenths of the time, his teachers are the only ones that don't treat him like an enemy. He can't accept the fact that these people who've been so kind to him have not been telling him the truth about Christianity, besides that there's the conflict that would ensue with his family if he changed his mind. And that's not even to, to consider the fact that there's just, and let's admit it, this isn't just about Muslims, this is everybody. There is a satisfaction in feeling superior to another group. It, we all have our groups that we love to look down on because it makes us feel good about ourselves, so we don't want to hear arguments that, in, that imply that they might be right and we might be wrong, because that means I don't get to feel superior to you anymore. I don't get to feel like I, I'm more moral and more, more academic and more intellectual. No, it, there's, too much, there's too much intellectually, there's too much emotionally at stake for him to change his mind. Arguments alone won't do it. So last week I said, the greatest apologetic argument in the world is an authentic walk with Christ. And I said that because the world has no argument against it. Every 
And we'll talk about arguments, we'll spend the, most of the rest of the study, starting week after next, Lord willing, talking about arguments for the faith. But the best ones you can come up with, the world comes back with, oh yeah, well how about this? But there's no argument against a person who lives with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They can't, they can't say, well, that's phony. Because they don't see that anywhere else. But a life that is authentic is the best apologetic argument in the world. You know, we started this study two weeks ago with 1 Peter 3.15. Because that's what we get the after word apologetics from. <clears throat> Always being prepared to make a defense. And that word defense, or answer, is the word apologia, which is where we get apologetics from. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's a very famous verse. In fact, just out of curiosity, how many of you knew that verse before we read it a few weeks ago? You heard it before. I don't mean you can memorize it, but yet, not a lot of people know the next verse. He goes on to say, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So defending your faith is more than making good arguments. And it's more even than being a good person, living a good life. A lot of people need to see that life in you. They need to spend time with you. It takes time and proximity and intentionality. You have to choose, I'm going to be this person's friend. I want them to see what Christ has done for me. I want them to feel love for me that they've never felt from anybody else. It takes time, because they need to see you in all seasons. They need to see how you handle stress, how you handle disappointment, how you handle fear and pain, how you treat your family, and how you treat mean people. They need to see how you spend your money and also how you sacrifice your money and your time for God and for others. They need to feel that you don't treat them as an opponent in some kind of war, but that you love them, that you see them as someone of value, someone you care about. And it takes time, but that's how eventually the elephant changes its mind. Because the elephant, the emotions, look at you and say, I guess there's something wrong about Christians. I always thought Christians were like this, but here's the Christian I know best in the world. And she's more like this. I didn't see that coming. So if I was wrong about what Christians are like, then maybe I'm wrong about some other things, too. That takes time. Now, you might be thinking, okay, but is this biblical? Some people raise the objection. Is it biblical? To, to say it takes long-term relationships because when you think about the spread of the gospel in the Bible, what do we think of? We think of big events. We think of apostles doing big things like Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching. 3,000 people get saved. Or Paul and Barnabas going on this missionary journey planting churches all over the Mediterranean world and, and thousands coming to Christ. And that's part of the story for sure. But how did Peter first get saved? How did Peter first meet Jesus? Anybody know? His brother Andrew brought him. His brother brought him to Jesus. Hey, I think we found the side. Come meet this guy. That's a long-term relationship. Wouldn't you say? They've known each other their whole lives. 
When Matthew, the former tax collector, gets saved, what is, what's the first thing he does? He throws a party and invites all of his tax collector friends to it so that Jesus can come so they can meet him. Matthew has no concern whatsoever about what this is going to do to Jesus' reputation. And thank God Jesus doesn't either. But that's his first action is, here's all these people I've done all this time. I want to bring them to Christ too. You know, Zacchaeus does the same thing. The, the chief of tax collectors in, in Jericho, he also throws a big party invites his tax collector buddies to meet Christ. Cornelius is another example. Cornelius didn't get saved through any kind of long-term relationship. He first uh, was visited by an angel, and the angel said, there's a guy named Peter who's going to come and tell you the gospel so you can believe. So what does Cornelius then do? He fills his house with people and says, and then Cornelius and all his household believe once Peter got there. So all of these people use their long-term relationships. Now, Here's another example you may not have thought of. So during the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas went on. This is Acts chapter 13. One of the places they went was a place called the city of Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world, just to make things confusing. You know, there was a, a Paris, France, and a Paris, Texas. I guess this was the Paris, Texas of the ancient world. The city of Antioch, Paul went to the, the synagogue and preached. And he gives this eloquent sermon. I mean, you can read it. It's in Acts 13. And he gets done, and people are fascinated. They beg him and say, please come back the next Sabbath day. We need to hear more about this. So he says, okay. So a week passes. Paul and Barnabas come back to the synagogue. This time, it says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. How do you think that happened? They didn't put up billboards. They didn't create a, a Facebook event and it went viral. No, people shared with people they knew. You've got to hear this. You've got to be here. And that's how people got saved. Here's one I didn't write down, but uh, you know the story of the, the demoniac that Jesus rescued in, in, in the area, the Gentile areas across the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus goes into that place, the man who's inhabited by the demons that call themselves legion. Uh, Jesus goes and, and heals this man, casts demons out of him. That's when the pigs rush into the water and, and drown themselves. Very interesting story. But what happens when the people of the village show up? They see Jesus, and they see the man who they feared all this time sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they're terrified. And they say, please, Jesus, you've got to get out. Now, why would they be terrified? Because he was Jewish and they were Gentile, and they think, if there's a Jew that's got that much power, what if he turns us into things? What if he, what can he do to us? But then the next time, Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee to the Ten Cities. What does it say? That he running, bringing their sick and their lame, just flooded to them to be saved, to be healed, to be preached to. What changed? All I know that changed was they left that newly healed man said, tell everybody about what's been for you. And that changed the whole countryside. Because he used the relationships he had to share what had happened to him. So, how do we create gospel-centered, long-term relationships? I've, I've listed some articles at the bottom. Some of, the, some of what I'm going to share with you comes from that, and some of it comes from my own experience. But just a few keys. Number one, to be a true friend. 
if you treat people like evangelism projects, they'll know. Most people are emotionally intelligent enough to know you don't really like me. You're just here because you're trying to get another notch on yourself. You're just you just want to see me believe, which you may think is a great motive, and I think it is, but it won't work. You have to truly love people. They know whether you love them or not. You have to you have to spend time with them. Uh, one of the articles I read said you need to get to the point with people where they have refrigerator rights, which means they can walk into your office and go to your mini fridge and pull out a Dr Pepper and not even ask. You need, to, you need to have that that sense that he gets, we think alike on some things. He cares about Be a, a, a true friend. And the thing about that is, I don't know if you realize this or not, most people today don't have friends anymore. They just don't. And it's a sad thing to say, but it's true. And people are dying for that. We may have 5,000 Facebook friends, but we don't have one person that we call in the middle of the night who we were in trouble. And so if you're a friend of somebody, you're going to meet a deep-seated need in their heart that they may not even know they have. Take time to really invest in that friendship. Number two, pray for them and let them know you're praying. Uh, I think there's no better way no smoother way to turn a relationship toward the gospel than to say, hey, I know you're struggling right now. I'm, I'm grateful. I just want you to know I'm grateful. You may even ask them, how would you like me to pray for you? Now, I've used that many, many times, and I've only been refused one time. I had a woman who I said, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. And she said, uh, I'm a pagan, darling. I have my own prayers. She said those exact words, which I took to mean she was in the wicked. Um, I, I wouldn't used to be called darling, but I, you know, was, <laughs> neither my grandma nor my waitress, I don't know what to do with that. So, uh, but she said, no, I don't need your prayers. And I said, well, what's it going to I'm going to pray for you anyway, so you might as well tell me how you'd like me to pray. And she softened. And she said, well, go ahead. You can pray for these things. So if someone says, you know, I don't believe in all that stuff, you can say, yeah, but I do. And surely you don't think it's going to hurt anything for me to pray if you don't even think my God is real. So you might as well tell me. What is there going on in your life that you'd like to pray about? And that, that's that transition where suddenly you're not just talking about baseball. You're not just talking about politics. You're not just talking about work. Now there's a spiritual element to your conversation. And you don't know what God can do for that. Pray for yourself as well. Pray for yourself. You can be able to love this person the way he does. And then a third thing, you've got to be patient in these relationships. You have to uh, think about gardening. Many of you, you grew up on a farm or you garden for fun now. Uh, but anybody who's ever done it knows, you don't just plop a seed in the ground and then show up a month or two later and start harvesting corn or potatoes or peas. It takes some work in between planting and harvesting. You've got to keep the weeds away. You've got to keep the ground wet. You've got to keep it watered. You have to, you have to protect the plant from bugs. There's all kinds of things you have to do. It takes great, great patience to be a gardener. 
There's a lot of gardening involved in winning people trust. If you don't garden, you're not in a harvest. Or if you do harvest, it'll be because somebody else is in a garden. But nobody goes from zero on a spiritual leader to I'm ready to receive Christ unless Jesus appears to them face to face. And I only know a handful of times he's done that. So it's up to us to do the hard work to invest in that relationship, be patient. And by the way, um, one of the articles I was reading said that at, on average, it takes six to eight invitations before somebody comes to church. That's not the only way to witness, but hopefully in your relationship with folks, you're at least saying, hey, it's Christmas Eve, you want to come to church with me. Hey, our, our choir's doing a big presentation. You're going to have to listen to our preaching. Come on. Come <laughs> on. We're having dinner afterwards. Come on. It takes between six to eight invitations before people will usually say yes. So don't give up. Be patient. Be persistent. Not annoying, but persistent. And then another key, this you may not have thought of this, introduce them to your Christian friends. Bring them around people you know who are believers. Remember when Jesus first, when, when Peter first believed in Christ on the boat. And Jesus said to him, hey, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And we've heard that a whole lot. And we have this picture in our minds of what that was. The problem is we grew up around lakes and, and piers out in the, out in the bay. So we think of fishing as a solitary guy with a rod and ring and, and some shrimp on the end of it or, or some other you know, chicken liver or whatever. And that's not what fishing looked like in the ancient world. It was a team effort. It was, it was Andrew and Peter and James and John and the other employees of the Sons of Zebedee. And they were all, it took all those people to throw out those nets, to set them in the right place, and then come back along later and pull those nets into the boat and then sort through the fish and throw the bad ones out and keep the good ones and clean the nets. It was a team effort. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, he didn't mean you've got to do it yourself. He meant as a community, we move people of Christ. There's, there's something beautiful when an unbeliever sees Christians interacting with each other, especially if Christians are interacting with each other the way the scriptures tell us to. When we're bearing one another's burdens, when we're holding one another accountable, when we're filled with the joy of the Lord. We actually have fun that they didn't think we had. When they see the love between us. And when we give our Christian friends the opportunity to invest in this person too. Now he has now he has dozens of people on his one praying for his salvation. And then here's the last thing, and that's be there when they need. Proverbs eighteen twenty four says a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Most of us have plenty of companions. And we call them friends, especially, I don't know, I hate to, I hate to overgeneralize, but in my experience, men are worse about this than women. Men will call any guy that they don't absolutely hate a friend. You know, yeah, he's my friend. We, we crack each other up when we're staying around the water cooler at work. Or, yeah, we, we play golf together that one time. Or, uh, you know, we, we've got this in common. We both like Star Wars. Or we both like, uh, you know, we both like Major League Baseball, whatever the case may be. Yeah, he's my friend. But if your world falls apart in the middle of the night, you're not going to call that. 
Because you would think, he doesn't want to hear from me. I'm not going to wake him up. You know a, a real friend when it's somebody who, when your world falls apart in the middle of the night, you call them because you think, he's going to be mad at me if I don't wake him He's going he's gonna to wonder why I didn't call She's going to grab me by the collar and say, how dare you not bring me in? I needed to be there for you. That's the true friend. And the only way we can show people that that's the kind of friend we are is by learning the kind of empathy that it takes to see what people need. Some of us are better at this than others. But don't give me the excuse that says, I'm just not part of that. Some people, yeah, tend to be more naturally compassionate. But we can all learn the gift of mercy. Don't just brag to me that, well, you know, I'm, 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 I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm, I'm more of a cut and dry, black and white, hard and hard truth kind of person. It's time for you to soften. It's okay. God will protect you. You'll be all right. Ask him to give you that kind of empathy. So that when that friend, that, that person who you know doesn't believe, when they get laid off, when they get served with divorce papers, when their mom passes away, when they their heart is broken, and you're the one that shows up and says, I'm praying for you, what can I do for you? And we just sit with you, and we just sit and sit by your bedside while you fall asleep. I'll do that, do whatever you need to do. That's what makes a difference. Because we all need that eventually. It's up to us as believers to be that person for people who don't know the love of Christ when God gives us that opportunity. First John 3.16 tells us, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Because we've been the recipient of the greatest act of love that ever happened, we should be capable of love that's greater than anybody else. That doesn't mean that unbelievers don't love. They do. But we ought to be capable of loving bigger and loving more. And we ought to be more given, more sacrificial. Do you think that's what we're known for in our culture today? I don't think so. It's time for us to change that. It's time for us to prove uh, that what they think about Christians is not true. Now, it's just too dangerous with what I've been talking about tonight. One is when you focus on intentional, long-term relationships with unbelievers, there's a chance you could be influenced by them instead of influencing them. And you've probably seen stories of that, and maybe that happened to you when you were an unbeliever. And maybe that's part of why the preachers of old taught this kind of hit-and-run, confrontational style of evangelism that never really talked about long-term relationships. In fact, a lot of us growing up was all there, and don't go around this people. They're, they're no good for you. But I think it's noteworthy that Jesus didn't protect his disciples from the bad people. He sent them out of sheep among wolves. He, he took a risk. He said, you go. Almost nobody's going to believe what you believe. You go. You got the gospel on your side. And they went. And lives were changed. It's really up to us as a church to disciple our members in such a way that they know that life with Jesus is the good life. 
And what the world calls the good life isn't even tempting anymore, isn't even appealing anymore. We're not tempted to be influenced by those who don't know our Lord because we know we came from that. We know what it was lacking. It's up to us as a church to disciple our members to that point. But it's also up to each one of you and me to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of the glory of grace. So yeah, that's a danger. But that's why you arm yourself with, with true faith, with a love for Christ that, that overrides any temptation this world offers. There's a second danger. This is what I want to end on. You may never speak gospel truth to a person, to a friend, because you're afraid it's going to mess up the friendship. I think some of you have experienced that. You got to be friends with an unbeliever, and then you got to be true friends. And you enjoy that friendship so much, you got to a point where you thought, okay, now, now I can, I probably need to start talking about the Lord. Now I probably need to ask him some questions about his soul. Now I need to make that move toward turning this from just a friendship toward a spiritual friendship. But he hesitated because, well, what if he doesn't like it? What if he thinks I'm weird? What if, what if this ends the friendship and, and we don't hang out anymore? I hate to say this, and I think this is me. But in that case, I, I don't think you really love that person, do you? Your heart isn't for what's good for them. Your heart is for what's good for you. And in that sense, you're using that person to make yourself feel good. The, the good feelings you get from that relationship are more important to you than that's that person's soul. So what you need to do in that case is just repent and pray to God and say, Lord, help me to love my friend like you love my friend. Help me to love my friend like you love me. When uh, a few years ago, several years ago, in fact, my daughter took a trip to Germany to spend some time with some friends that she met on a mission trip. Spent her own money. I mean, this was a big deal. And literally the day she was taking off on the flight, she got a phone call from the person who was supposed to pick her up in Germany at the airport and take her to the town where they live. And this friend said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't make it. I can't be there at the airport. Uh, you'll just need to get on a train, and that'll get you to our, our place. And my daughter at the time was you know, probably 19 or 20. And that, the idea of trying to navigate all of that for herself terrified her. But she always spent the money on plane tickets. And, and so she said, I'm going to try to figure it out. So she got on her plane and flew to Germany. Meanwhile, my wife said, hey, doesn't your friend Ned live in Germany now? I had this old friend who's become pastor of an English-speaking church in Germany. I said, yeah, it does. She said, he did. See if he could maybe help her out. So I reached out to Nick. And I said, do you live anywhere near Frankfurt? He said, well, sort of. And I told him my problem. I didn't even have the nerve to ask him. He said, do you want me to go to the airport and just make sure she gets on the right train? I said, man, I would love it if you do that. And he did. And she made it on the right train. And I'm eternal. You can imagine how grateful uh, my wife and I are toward Nick. Uh, we built a statue of him in our backyard. <laughs> So just think about this. When you choose to be a friend to one of God's lost and wandering children, think how grateful he is toward you. 
Think about what what an offering of love that is. When you didn't have to go out and do what you've got enough friends, you've got plenty of stuff on your plate, you choose to be related to that person because they're lost. Or you choose to take that relationship that already exists that you kept purely professional and say, I'm going to see if I can work this towards something where I'm sharing faith with this person. When you do that, think about what an offering of worship and love that is from you to God. No matter how it turns out, you're doing what you can to get his lost child home. Alright, let me pray for Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were lost and wandering, I think every one of us could name someone who was there for us. Uh, some of us could name several someones. But Lord, we, we thank you that there were people who loved us enough to be true friends, to be true uh, parents or, or siblings or teachers, who loved us enough and lived an authentic enough life that we trusted them. And we saw in them something we really needed. And then they shared with us what it was, and it was you. Lord, thank you for sending that person or those people into our lives. That's how we came to know you. So, Lord, help us. Give us opportunities to be that person for someone else. Help us, Lord, to take full advantage of every one of our relationships that we have with unbelieving people, with people who are stumbling and staggering in their faith, people who are doubting. Lord, as, as we have... Uh, people in our lives that we just see as acquaintances. If, if you brought them into our lives for us to establish a friendship like this, make that clear to us and let us take full advantage of them. Lord, use us for your glory that we might see people come into your kingdom. But that is, that is what you desire. You came to seek and save the lost. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.